0: Whether it's on a bus or a train, in school or at the store, or maybe just walking down a busy street, we are bound to run into someone who is just downright unusual. But perhaps one day you'll meet someone who surpasses unusual and turns out to be unbelievably mysterious. Airports play host to a variety of people. Most everyone is either arriving from or departing to a different place. But one traveler who arrived at an airport couldn't even find his homeland on a map. The man flew from Europe to Japan and landed at the Haneda Airport in Tokyo. At customs, when asked to present his passport, officials noted the man was from a country called Torad, This baffled airport officials, as this was a country they never heard of before. They questioned the man, and he told them how Torrid was situated between the borders of France and Spain and had been established for over a thousand years. When asked to point to his home on a map, the man was agitated to find a country named Andorra was in the place of Torrid. To make matters even stranger, the airport officials attempted to contact the company the man was there to meet, but attempts failed, and it was discovered that the company he said he worked for didn't exist, and the people they did end up getting in touch with had no idea who this man even was anyway. Aside from having currency from several different countries and being fluent in French and Japanese, the man from Torrid was an utter mystery. Until the matter could be figured out, they put the man up in a hotel with security outside his door and confiscated his passport and ID. The next morning, however, the man was no longer in his hotel room, and all his belongings had vanished from the airport security. The story of the man from Torrid seems like a story ripped from the pages of a science fiction novel. It is not uncommon for someone to find the courage to pirate an airplane and hold its passengers hostage, but it is quite rare for that person to get away with it and completely disappear altogether. Wearing a nice suit and tie, a man who called himself Dan Cooper bought a ticket to fly to Seattle on a Boeing 727. While on board the plane, he handed a note to a flight attendant and requested she read it immediately. The note stated that he had a bomb but wouldn't use it if everyone followed his instructions. After landing in Seattle, Cooper let the passengers off the plane, requested the plane be refueled, and demanded $200,000 and four parachutes be brought to him. Soon after, the plane was back in the air, and Cooper, two pilots, the flight engineer, and one flight attendant took off toward Reno, Nevada. This time... Cooper had the engineer and attendant enter the cockpit and close the door. Not too long after leaving the Seattle airport, they saw warnings go off that the aft air stair had been activated and there was a change of air pressure. The plane landed in Reno and was immediately boarded by armed police searching for any sign of him. But D.B. Cooper had already jumped from the plane, presumably landing somewhere in southwest Washington. The search for D.B. Cooper by the FBI lasted over 45 years, but eventually they called it quits. The only evidence ever recovered was a tie in some bundles of the cash he had received for the ransom. History has given us incredible and influential poets and authors throughout time such as the renowned Edgar Allan Poe. His work has affected many, but none so much as the Poe Toaster. Edgar Allan Poe died in 1849 at the age of 40 in Baltimore, Maryland. Starting in the 1930s, an unknown person would visit the cenotaph marking the original burial site of Edgar Allan Poe, always donned in black, wearing a scarf or hood to hide their face, and holding a silver-tipped cane. His visits were always consistent. He would arrive early in the morning on January 19th, Poe's birthday, every year. He would pour one glass of cognac, raise a toast to Poe, and leave the rest of the bottle along with three roses at the site. Occasionally, the mysterious figure left notes along with the other gifts. One note stated, Edgar, I haven't forgotten you and another said, "...the torch will be passed," with references to a son. It is presumed that the Poe toaster left this dutiful tradition to his offspring, who held up the ritual into the 2000s. Many people have attempted to get a glimpse of the elusive toaster, but so far, both father and son have remained an enigma. 2009 was the last known sighting of the Poe toaster, Of course, no one is sure why they decided to stop, but some speculate that the bicentennial of Poe's birth was a logical place to end the long-held ceremony. The state of the world and the people in it have advanced over the last thousand years. Even the most rural parts of the world have adopted Western technologies and fashions, but some tribes have no intentions of changing. There's a man that lives in the jungles of the Amazon on a large piece of land that has been sanctioned off just for him. It is believed that the remaining people of his tribe were massacred by ranchers sometime in the 70s or 80s, leaving him as the only survivor. He has continued to live the sheltered tribal life and refuses to contact anyone who approaches him. Those brave enough are met with a sharpened bit of wood he fashioned into an arrow. He crafted several huts around the land, all of them containing a six-foot-deep hole used as a form of defense or to trap animals. Around one of his huts, researchers have found a lush and plentiful garden, dried nuts, and a torch he formed out of resin. In 2009, he was attacked by gunmen, possibly wanting to get rid of him so they could have his land. Brazilian authorities found the protection post on the land had been raided, and there were empty shotgun shells nearby. Though no one has been charged for the attack, they believe the tribesman is alive and well. None of his people are left, no one knows what language he speaks, and he refuses to let anyone get too close. It seems this mysterious man is determined to live out his days in the safety of the jungle. The race to make the first atom bomb was on, and the United States was determined to keep their progress a secret from Germany and Japan, so they never expected the Soviet Union to send in a spy of their own. After the fall of the Soviet Union in the 90s, the KGB archives about the once-classified Manhattan Project were released to the public. In the files, there were several mentions about a man or a woman known as Perseus, a physicist recruited to help work on the atomic bomb. He is believed to have been a Soviet spy that was sent to infiltrate the U.S. and gain access to their information. However, it wasn't just in the Manhattan Project files that Perseus has been mentioned. Russian intelligence officer Colonel Vladimir Chikov was the first person to publicly write about the mysterious scientist, claiming that he or she was not interested in being paid for their work, but instead acted out of purely ideological considerations. But even though Chekov has spoken about Perseus outside of unclassified archives, there are still no clues as to who Perseus could have been. Perseus was successful in sending along what information he or she could back home, and the Soviet Union, a supposed ally to the U.S., gradually caught up in the race to atomic status. To this day, the identity of Perseus remains a mystery. Before there were Bunsen burners, there were crucibles. Before there was chemistry, there was alchemy. And before there was Marie Curie, there was Falconelli. Falconelli is a famous alchemist who was born sometime in the 1800s and mysteriously disappeared around 1926. His identity has never been revealed, even though he brought three gentlemen under his wing and became their teacher. They all kept their lips sealed on who the real Falconelli was. His first and most notable student was a man named Eugene Consiglier, who joined him at just 16 years old. Under Falconelli's guidance, Eugene used a projection powder to turn lead into gold, which one of Falconelli's other students had witnessed happen. Falconelli has written several books under the same pen name with pages that have been illustrated by his other student, Jean-Julien Hubert Chapinion. This leads some to speculate that Jean Julien was Falconelli himself, but this was never proven, and the known timeline doesn't match up. Eugene claimed that in 1953, 27 years after Falconelli's disappearance, he met up with the alchemist in a Spanish castle. At the time, Falconelli would have been over 100 years old, but Eugene said the man looked to be in his 50s instead. No longer Falconelli the Alchemist, he was now Falconelli the Divine Androgen. And what happened to him after that remains a mystery to this day. Stay with us, we'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world tune in to hometown ghost stories live on youtube every tuesday night at 9 p.m eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted Two boys playing down by the shore on a beach in Sandy Cove, Nova Scotia, made a very unusual discovery. A man with his legs cut off above the knee lay nearly lifeless on the shores of Sandy Cove. No one could get him to speak, but he mumbled something that sounded like Jerome, so this was what they called him. The man looked to be in his late teens or early 20s, but with him not speaking a single word, they couldn't know this for sure. In fact, his silence opened up a whole world full of theories. Maybe he was a sailor that committed mutiny, or an heir to a fortune who was disposed of, or perhaps he was the man who was found across the bay that people in Chipman, New Brunswick called Gambi. This was the most plausible explanation as Gamby was a man about the same age as Jerome, who was found with his legs stuck in an iced over river, which eventually needed amputation. Gamby was supposed to be taken to his homeland, but was tossed overboard by the man accompanying him. Though the stories seemed to match up, nothing could truly be confirmed because Jerome refused to speak to anyone. Jerome had a nasty disposition and was therefore resentfully looked after by a Catholic community for the rest of his life. He died the same day as the Titanic sank, making his death go practically unnoticed. A shoemaker in Nuremberg, Germany came across a teenage boy stumbling like a drunk walking down the road. The peasant-looking boy handed the shoemaker a letter that led to far more questions than answers. The mysterious origins and characteristics of the boy known as Kasper Hauser was a story that swept Germany. He was sensitive to light, colors, and sounds. He couldn't tell the difference between men and women except by their clothes, and didn't know the difference between inanimate objects and living things. He was sensitive to metals and magnets, stating they pulled at him when they were near him. This wasn't the extent to his abilities by any means, but they did come with their own set of side effects, such as the smell of coffee and beer making him vomit, just the smell of wine making him drunk, and thunderstorms causing him extreme pain. When Caspa had fully developed his vocabulary, he told how he was kept in a small cage in a boarded-up room, never seeing the light of day, with only a straw mat to sleep on, and a diet of only black bread and water. Caspa was never allowed to see his jailer's face as he was drugged with opium when it was time for a bath and a change of clothes. His jailer wrote a letter stating that the boy was left on his doorstep But he couldn't take him in due to his own 10 children, but gave him what life he could in the cage. The man claimed the boy to be 17 years old, and for that reason, he sent him to Nuremberg to meet the captain of the cavalry to be a rider, quote, like his father was. Before Caspa could fully embrace life and become a rider in the cavalry, he was stabbed to death when he was presumably 21 years old. The story of Kasbahauza Hauser can be summed up by the words on his tombstone. Here lies Kasbahauza, Hauser, riddle of his time. His birth was unknown, his death mysterious. Deviating from what is normal, some people spend years trying to do just that, while others, well, it kind of just falls right into their lap. siblings have trouble getting along from time to time, but imagine the siblings being attached. Giacomo and Giovanni Tocci were born in Locana, Italy between 1875 and 1877. The delivery process of the twins seemed to have been fairly simple since both babies were small in size. Both of the boys' parents were in a complete state of utter shock, however, when greeted with dicephalic conjoined twins. The initial shock in their appearance resulted in their own father experiencing a mental breakdown, sending him off to a month-long recovery evaluation at a lunatic asylum. Both Giacomo and Giovanni were joined at their sixth rib and shared two legs, the same genitals, and intestines. Despite the odds being stacked against them, the boy's father had an interesting plan in order to make the family some extra money. At four weeks old, the newborn twins were escorted from their hometown to the city of Turin, Italy. Their father desired additional financial income and thought it would be best to take the boys to Turin's Freak Show, where professors from the Turin Academy of Medicine could further exhibit the children. Astonished by the conjoined twins, Giacomo and Giovanni went on to serve the remainder of their childhood and adolescent years being exhibited in front of the public as a form of entertainment throughout major cities in Europe. Their popularity grew substantially over the course of their time with the freak show and together Giacomo and Giovanni became known as the two-headed boy. Though the twins shared one body, both possessed polar opposite personalities and were intelligent individuals that spoke Italian, German and French. Giovanni appeared to be introverted and enjoyed drinking mineral water, while Giacomo appeared to be extroverted and enjoyed quenching his thirst with beer. Unable to walk, they could only stand and would either use a wheelchair to move or crawled around on the ground whenever possible. In 1891, the boys traveled on an extensive American freak show tour that earned them $1,000 a week. Intriguing many across America, their one-year tour turned into a five-year public exhibition. With their overwhelming earnings, the boys were able to eventually retire in 1897 and lived out the rest of their days in a villa in Venice, Italy. The long years of being used as a form of entertainment caused the twins to stay hidden in their villa as they both desired privacy from the public eye. Giacomo and Giovanni married two women in 1904, however numerous reports speculate whether the two were actually dead or alive throughout the early 1900s. Together, the conjoined twins remained hidden from the media and led private lives together. It is not known when they passed away or if they ever had their own children. (laughs) She was said to be the sweetest little farm girl you would ever meet, and just wait until you get a look at her legs. Myrtle Corbin was born on May 12, 1868 in Lincoln County, Tennessee, to William and Nancy Corbin. Doctors immediately noticed that the newborn suffered from dipygus, a congenital deformity that caused her to develop her own pelvis while carrying the pelvis and underdeveloped legs of her twin. Out of all eight siblings, Myrtle was the only child to develop a rare medical deformity. Regardless of the spare pelvis and legs, her family reported that she thrived and was a perfectly healthy child. At the age of 13, Myrtle joined the sideshow circuit and was known as the four-legged girl from Texas. Though she physically exhibited four legs, only one leg was dominant over the rest due to a single clubbed foot and the two small legs which she could move, but she could not use for walking. Her main attraction was to dress up her extra limbs and stockings, and because of this, she would go on to earn as much as $450 a week. Being the unique figure she was had caused other performers to try to recreate her unusual physical appearance with phony limbs once she had left the sideshow business. Though she was successful in her adolescent years, Myrtle went on to get married when she was 19 years old and together they settled down having four daughters and one son. Doctors were able to conclude that each pelvis contained reproductive organs which successfully gave her the ability to conceive. Due to her extraordinary condition, Myrtle was featured in a number of medical journals throughout her life. Her incredible condition caused a major impact in the medical world. And on May 6, 1928, Myrtle passed away, surrounded by friends and family in Cleburne, Texas. In 1885, Martin Emmerling was born in Nuremberg, Germany, and seemed like just a normal boy. Growing up, Martin didn't appear to have any external deformities. However, he was born with a twisted spine. As a young adult, he was able to train himself to twist his head a full 180 degrees. Martin knew he could make a living from his talent and decided to move from Germany to America with other European sideshow performers in 1921. It didn't take long for him to pursue an incredibly successful career performing with popular sideshow businesses such as Ripley's Believe It or Not and the Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey. His increase in popularity inspired him to change his name to Martin Lorello, but he took on a number of different names, such as the human owl, the man with the revolving head, and Bobby, the boy with the revolving head. His unusual talent did leave many skeptical. When confronted, Martin stated that it took him three years to train his body into twisting abnormal lengths. The training had caused Martin to dislocate vertebrae and even caused him to lose complete air circulation while twisting his head on stage. His acts caused him to attract massive crowds wherever he went and landed him on TV shows throughout the 1930s to 1950s. Martin was also known for training dogs and cats on stage, making them perform acrobatic tricks at his command. Though he did appear to be an amazing man who left his audience feeling amused and disturbingly unsettled, he didn't seem to carry the best reputation off stage. Sideshow performer Priscilla the Monkey Girl Bajano described Martin as a Nazi and an extremely unpleasant man. In 1931, Martin was arrested by police in Baltimore after abandoning his wife in New York. Martin's last recorded appearance was on the show You Asked For It in 1952. It would be three years later in 1955 when he would suffer a fatal heart attack at the age of 70. No one has since been able to display the same exact abnormal talents as Martin, making him an incredible part of Sideshow history. That's all for now. Remember, you may not believe it. But anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Everyone is unique. But sometimes there are those that can be far more unique than just about everyone else. The idea of scaling massive rock walls is terrifying to the average person, and indeed this instinctive fear is unerring. Every year, professional rock climbers and mountaineers suffer very critical injuries that are sometimes even fatal. At 5.32 a.m. on June 3rd of 2017, Alex Honol decided to climb the summit of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. Higher than the tallest building on the planet, El Capitan rises more than a half mile from the forest below. Climbers that approached the formidable El Capitan in the past did so with ropes, quickdraws, and carabiners. However, all Alex brought with him were his climbing shoes and a bag of chalk. This type of climbing is called free soloing. As opposed to traditional free climbing, the soloist uses no safety gear. This climbing requires unbelievable physical and mental skill. In just under four hours of Alex's daring feat, he managed to pull himself up over the final ledge and stood atop one of the world's most iconic summits. There is no doubt that bold individuals like Alex lead us to question what extremes we ourselves are actually capable of undertaking. At some point in our lives, we have heard how important stretching is to participating in any kind of physical activity. However, it is not likely that we would ever be able to stretch to a degree that this gifted woman is able to. Julia Gunthal, also known by her performing name as Zlata, is considered the most flexible woman in the world. The Kazakhstan native trained as a gymnast for years before moving to Germany. Once in Germany, she started performing as a contortionist. In the world of contortion, there are two types of performers front benders and back benders. But Zlatta is one of a very select group that can bend her spine in both directions. This extreme flexibility allows her to hold poses that no one else on earth can. Zlata even earned a world record by popping three balloons between her back and the back of her legs in 12 seconds. In an effort to discover the source of this incredible skill, Zlata agreed to undergo an MRI while in one of her famous poses. As a result, doctors were able to determine the secret was in her ligaments. As we age, our ligaments harden and become more rigid. In Zlata's case, this never happened leaving her with connective tissue as pliable as that of an infant. Echolocation is when a noise is made to get a picture of one's surroundings by listening to the way the sound waves bounce back. The most sophisticated systems of echolocation in nature exist in animals such as bats and dolphins. Nevertheless, there has been one human that gave Mother Nature a run for her money. Born in 1992 in Riverside, California, Ben Underwood's young life started like any other. But it was at the early age of two years old that his life would change forever. Ben was diagnosed with retinal cancer. The cancer was severe enough that in order to save Ben's life, the doctors had to remove both of his eyes. It was five years later, at the age of seven, when Ben first discovered his gift. He was clicking his tongue and realizing that he was able to get a rough idea of his surroundings by listening to the echoes as they returned to him. After much diligent practice, Ben was able to hone his skill to the degree that he was able to play basketball and football, as well as ride a bike and skateboard. Ben was considered the most skilled echolocator, in history. Tragically, a week before his 17th birthday, the same cancer that took his eyes took his life. Ben's mother, Aquanetta Gordon, published a book about his life in 2014 with the hopes that his inspirational story would continue to live on. For anyone that struggled through math class, a calculator was often their saving grace. The same is true about math professor Arthur T. Benjamin, but the only difference is, his calculator is inside his head. With degrees from Carnegie Mellon and Johns Hopkins Universities, Benjamin is undoubtedly an exceedingly intelligent individual. However, the word intelligent does not begin to even cover it. Benjamin is a professor at Harvey Mudd College specializing in combinatorics, the study of countable discrete structures. He is also the author of over 90 academic papers and 5 books. Benjamin was already a notable figure in his field, but it was not until his 2005 TED talk that the rest of the world was exposed to his genius. In this talk he performed what he calls math magic, a combination of math and magic. He began his talk by bringing four people from the crowd with calculators up on stage. He then asked the audience to pick two random two-digit numbers to multiply together. Benjamin was then able to call out the answer faster than anyone could type the problem into their calculator. As the show progressed, Benjamin was squaring five-digit numbers mentally in a matter of only seconds. To accomplish this, he has taught himself to use mnemonic devices to represent numbers in his mind. Benjamin now lectures about his amazing skill in schools and corporate events all over the country. Daniel Tomett was the first born in a family of nine children in Barking, East London. When he was a child, he was plagued by epileptic seizures. Daniel was later diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. His ability to remember the faces of those he meets is equal to that of a 6-8 to eight year old. In a 2014 Psychology Today interview, Daniel says he found it very difficult to relate to other people, to do things that most people take for granted, like knowing how to read body language, how to make eye contact, and when to laugh at a joke. Despite what would appear to be significant hindrances, Daniel Tomet is actually in possession of one of the most advanced and unique minds in the world. Daniel first showed his ability by placing in both the 1999 and 2000 World Memory Championships. While he may have a hard time remembering faces, he seems to be able to learn and recall just about everything else. Daniel speaks 11 languages. He learned Icelandic in a single week because he had a television interview there and wanted to be prepared. He holds the European record for reciting Pi to the 22,514th digit, a feat which took 5 hours and 9 minutes to complete. Daniel's skills are the result of being what is called a prodigious savant. There are fewer than 100 in the world. Even though his nature causes him to struggle socially, he has overcome it to a degree, where he is able to appear at speaking events and even operate a successful language learning company. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So, if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says Support the Show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, It's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.